Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a great founder that has done it a few times. Uh, there's definitely a lot of lessons learned along the way and we're definitely going to be discussing them in detail today. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Ariel Katz. Welcome to the show. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So born in New York City and growing up there in the Upper West Side. So how was life growing up there? It's good. It's all I knew until I left New York City and realized that not everyone lives in New York City. And it's a very big world outside of New York. And I didn't realize that growing up, I, I grew in a bubble, Upper West Side, Upper East Side, Manhattan. And so a lot of pros, lots of cons to that experience. So how was it attending the same school, a Jewish prep school for 12 years? Most of my best friends have been my best friends since kindergarten, which is really nice. And you have lifelong memories. 20 years plus with the same people is, is you they just li live through different journeys in life together. And, and those are lifelong friends. And so there's so many of those created via that process. Lack of diversity was definitely a thing in my life, which I didn't realize when you're 12 years old. So just being around the same people, you, again, lots of pros, lots of cons. Uh, I did like the institution all in all, and, and I got a lot out of it. I might do it again. I might send my kids there in the future. You know, it's interesting because you're one of a kind, you know, you don't get to meet a lot of New Yorkers that have been born and raised and that stayed in, in New York City. For some reason, New York City is kind of like a big United Nations. Uh, and I guess that for you being born, being raised in New York, I guess that you probably were exposed very early on to the to the drive and to the ambition and to being with, you know, some of the best professionals coming from all over the world to work in the city. So how would you say that that has influenced perhaps you and uh, also your vision about you know what you wanted to accomplish in the future. And it's interesting. It relates to a different topic. If you talk to two investors, success is defined by different outcomes. You talk to Sequoia, they will only invest if they think you're going to be a $100 billion business. You talk to most other investors in the world, they're okay with a billion dollar business. Uh, and so the, the bar and the standard at which you measure yourself for success is all relative to every person and their background and their experience. And so in, with my background and my experience, the bar was set much higher. You're not successful, <laughs> as I'm getting into my psyche, I'm not successful unless I set a certain bar for myself. And that bar is creating an enduring, lasting, multi-tens of hundreds of billion dollar business. And, and that's really, that was instilled at a younger age. 
and what I was exposed to at a younger age of the bar is much, much, much higher than I think for other people. So I guess how do you, because, you know, it's easy, it's easy to compare yourself to others, right? Uh, but I think that how, how are you able to perhaps just focus on yourself rather than focus on others? By getting thick skin over time. When I first started Research Connection, I cared what others thought about me. Now I don't care at all. <laughs> so uh, uh, learned it over time because if you care what others people say you just read all the junk and you can never yeah. actually focus on anything absolutely i mean in your case you know obviously quite a it took a different uh, you know trajectory going into colleges because you attended three colleges in three different years so how did that happen i wouldn't recommend it for anyone that tries you can't develop in uh, lasting friendships because you leave effort college is not a year it's three months winter break three months, <laughs> then the summer. And so uh, I got into the University of Pittsburgh, which in hindsight, I loved my experience there. I actually really loved my experience at all those institutions. They're all incredibly different. University of Pittsburgh, it's as far as away from New York as my parents would let me go. It's, it's actually pretty far. It's like a nine hour drive. Different world, Midwest, very different world than New York City, Upper East Side, Upper West Side. And so love that experience. And I, I ended up going to Israel for a year, Jerusalem at the crux of the Israeli-Arab conflict living in East Jerusalem. It's very different as well. Love that experience. Developed really great relationships, amazing experiences. And then going back home to New York, going to Binghamton, all different reasons for why I got exposed to it. And then like it was just a different experience. Uh, and so I wouldn't recommend it, to be honest, but it, it was great to have all those different life experiences and meet a lot of different people around the world in such a short period of time. And also in your junior year uh, there in, in, in college is really where you started to really think about what you could do, how you could maybe like fill a gap, you know, into a problem, you know, perhaps with bringing a solution to market. So that's the time where you essentially launched your, your first company. How old were you? An idea came, I was 20 and then turned 21 <laughs> during that time. Basically. <laughs> so basically at 21 is really when, when you bring it to life. So, so how was that process like for you guys? I had no idea what I was doing. I was just working with friends on something that I thought was a lot more fun than going to class every single day. And I knew like I would enjoy this more than uh, studying for tests. And so at that point in time, I focused a lot more of my energy on research connection. Most people, when they're juniors in college, they look for summer internships. It's like the thing to do. I didn't really want to do that. And so I didn't do that. So I was like, I'm just going to go raise some money. And pushed as hard as possible to do so. And we ended up raising $50,000 family and friends round. I just spent all summer working on this thing. And then by the time we got back to college senior year, I really cared a lot less about classes and just, just worked on this. It was the funnest time, honestly, ever. And I had spent <laughs> my stamina is going down. I won't tell investors or employees, but like uh, I would work from like 7 a.m. to midnight and only work. And it was the funnest thing. I'd get on like the 7.50 a.m. bus to campus I'd get back on like the 1152 bus from campus and I would just have so much energy every single day to come in and work with the team. And it was, it was, didn't feel like work. It was like, I'm hanging out with my friends working on this cool project together. And so it was a really amazing experience to do that. So what were you guys doing? What was the business model? Uh, so it was a B2B enterprise SaaS. Uh, we pivoted, but the start of it was B2B enterprise SaaS. We thought universities needed to have better ways to engage their students with research going on at their institution. There's a lot of outcomes that show that students that get involved with scholarly research have a lot more successful careers, basically, and make a larger impact in the world. That's how we started. We then pivoted to having it be a platform, a database of faculty at universities for students that are looking to pursue PhD programs could go to. 
and find the right faculty mentor to work with on their PhD and apply to work with them. And so I pivoted from B2B to B2C. That pivot took place after we graduated and we were already working on this full time. That was the idea for the business. So how did you get your, your university to really buy your own stuff? It's a one-minute story. The university agreed with that philosophy. Students should get more involved in academic research as their extracurricular activity instead of going to parties. Objectively true and good in the world. The issue was that they invested in it before I came up with the idea to do that there. And so they invested tens of thousands of dollars into this office called Undergraduate Research Opportunity Office or Undergraduate Student Research Opportunity Office and built software to do what we were building. And so half the university on the provost side was not excited about us. Then you had the entrepreneurship office saying, you've got to be kidding me. The students supporting entrepreneurship on campus, you have to make this happen. And so leverage that relationship plus the relationship with the vice president of research at the, at the university and just continuously pushed and said, this is going to be the best thing, not only for student entrepreneurship, but we're going to build better software than an IT department at a university to eventually get the president to push down uh, supporting research connection and then being the first check into the business. They, uh, I always tell them, uh, it used to be a joke, the Binghamton paid me more than I ended up paying Binghamton in tuition uh, with the contract that they, that they gave us to pay for the software. That's amazing. And obviously here you're talking about checks and that is a nice segue into, into money, into raising money. I mean, here you are 21 years old. I mean, what was the experience of being 21 years old, have not raised any money, you know, previously in your life. So you're doing it for the very first time. How was that for you? I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and even it, it, this was a while ago. The amount of resources that were available back then doesn't compare to today. For example, you could go to Y Combinator and download the YC standard documents, which is how most early stage entrepreneurs raise their seed round of financing. Didn't exist back then. Uh, like the amount of resources, like entrepreneurs today have much easier, to be honest, just what's open and available for free. I just did a ton of reading and I failed along the way uh, a lot of times, but then you get one or two, it's, it's like sales. If you keep trying, you get one out of 20, the 19 don't really matter. So I got a whole lot of no's, a whole lot of nobody responding, a whole lot of people hanging up on me, but we got a few to say yes. And only those few matter. Then once you get the few, the, the snowball goes down. You're like, oh yeah, I've already raised... 50,000 bucks. Do you want to invest another $50,000? It's a lot easier to get that next 50 after you get the first 50. And so it's true for anything with fundraising. And so um, I had a lot of failures, but it wasn't, that wasn't the hardest round of financing I've ever had to do. We did a friends and family of about 45K. And then we raised about $600,000 seed round after graduation. Those weren't so bad. They didn't even take that long in hindsight. But I... uh, what was the total? What was the total amount for, for the company that you guys raised? About 620K, give or take. Got it. And then eventually you grew the company for about four years. And then you saw the full cycle because the company got acquired. So so tell us about this transaction. So we were in a position where we could either push hard to raise our Series A, which have been, would have been tough. Like the metrics were almost there, not fully there to really easily raise the Series A. Uh, but at that time, we were actually talking to uh, someone to partner with. Uh, I got connected to, through him through one of our advisors and mentors was the CEO of Tutor.com, online tutor marketplace for those of you that have students or kids <laughs> and online tutors. And so he had a friend that was running an education technology growth stage fund. And we were talking about partnering with him that she was interested in what we were doing we were, and we both had a, the same vision. And he said, instead of you raising a round, what if we acquire your assets and focus it more on just uh, undergraduate education? That was um, enticing for us. 
And so we ended up going down that path and and selling the business. The funds came from the Gates Foundation, the Ewan Calvin Foundation, and it was championed and still being used by the University of Virginia and this growth stage accelerator fund in DC called Jefferson EdTech Accelerator Fund. Wow. I mean, obviously, you know, at this age where people are starting to get their first jobs, here you are selling your first business. So I guess that this gave you a lot of time to to reflect. And in fact, you took some time off. So so tell us about this time off and and what obviously that time off obviously was the segue to to your next business. But I'm sure that a time off, you know, gave you some some time to really think about the future. Yeah, it was actually really nice in hindsight. Because the twenty the young twenties, time off and I met my wife. I was able to spend a lot of time with her during that year and summer. It was really nice. I traveled a lot, spent a lot of time in India. And that's how I ended up meeting Ian, who's my co-founder at H1. We both had a salesman that he worked for me at Research Connection. He worked for Ian at Ian's company, Shore Group. It's called Shore Group. And he said, oh, if you're going to India, which I had plans to go to India for vacation for about six months and just backpack and travel around it, you should meet Ian. He's a good guy. I was like, all right. And I was just getting coffee and meeting people and networking. And uh, I met Ian. Didn't think much of it. I came back and I started working on a side project with a couple of former Research Connection colleagues. And Ian called me on a Saturday. I remember it vividly. I was doing work on like a Saturday. And he's like, whatever you're working on, I want to acquire. I was like, what? It's like three of us working on a project. He's like, I want to do it. Like, I'm not interested in that. Like, we, we, we don't even have anything. And um, so from there, we became friends. We worked together on some stuff for about a year. And then one day, it was end of 2017. I remember that it was November of 2017. I put together this deck. I was very excited. And I went to Ian and I pitched him on the idea of H1. At the time, Ian was CEO of a big business, $20 million revenue business, relatively big. And he was like on slide three or four, he was like, I'm in. And that's how the whole thing started. Nice. So then what happened next? We started working on this thing. It was crazy. It's me, Ian. I brought back our former CTO of Research Connections, a guy named Zach Feuerstein. There's a couple people that I was working with on some projects, started working on it together. And we just started growing the thing, building up the data asset. The vision for H1 at the time was, let's, uh, the idea at, was back then was like, let's just build a source of truth of information about doctors. I think that's going to be useful to people. It could be useful to non-for-profits who want to fund medical research. So like, the, this is when the ice bucket challenge was big. <laughs> so uh, we were like, well, the ALS Foundation is getting all this money to fund ALS research. Don't they need to know what happens to the research that they're funding so the donors care? Don't the donors care if the research that they're funding works or the Breast Cancer Foundation or the Alzheimer's Foundation? Uh, the short answer is not really. Um, side point, and the not-for-profits are not incentivized to care, which is another story. Then we're like, what about the government? Government spends $40 billion a year on funding medical research via the NIH, National Institute of Health. Don't they care to know if that funding actually leads to positive outcomes? And the short answer was yes, but it's really hard to sell to the government. And then we said, well, what about pharma? Pharma spending billions of dollars a year funding medical research. Don't they care if they're funding the right research and if they're collaborating with the right healthcare professionals? And the answer was yes, and they'll pay for it. And so we focused on that market. Uh, but it, it took a few months to figure that out. And so that, that's how it all came together. So how would you say that perhaps H1 has evolved. I mean, how? what's the business model today? How do you guys make money? B2B enterprise SaaS, um, the idea for H1's become much bigger. Uh, we want to build the source of truth of doctor information around the world. Anyone in the world, if they want to learn anything about a doctor, to work with, to fund for medical research, to collaborate, to recruit, to go see, is going to use H1 and is starting to do that. 
And so, so far we've worked with life science companies, so pharma, biotech, med device, hospitals and health systems, and starting to work with payers, insurance companies, and then uh, healthcare professionals themselves use the platform. And we have a vision for patients to eventually use it, as well as governments. We license access to the platform. It's free for every doctor to use. They can just log in, download their profile, update it, network, do their thing. But we license access to the data to uh, these life science organizations, as well as these um, hospitals and health systems. They use it to find the right, right doctor to work with for medical research. It's a high level. So, so in your guys' case, you know, what one pivotal moment was definitely Y Combinator. Uh, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people right now that are listening that are thinking about maybe putting their application together and joining an accelerator or an incubator. Obviously, Y Combinator is like, uh, in, my, in my opinion, is the number one. Uh, but I guess what was the lesson there for you to learn on, on what is the best way to navigate, you know, let's say getting into a Y Combinator? Yeah, so uh, we have an interesting story for how we got in. The company was fairly far along. I had a term sheet for $6.25 million to lead our Series A. I uh, won't name the investor. We had to sign it by October 30th. I remember that. It was Halloween. And I went to a conference, and I was moderating a panel. And one of the people on the panel was a partner at the time at Y Combinator. He still is. And he came up to me after the conference, after the panel, and said, man, we do a bad job recruiting the best New York comp SaaS companies. It's like, yeah, you missed out. We were too late stage. Uh, he then shoots me an email uh, the next day and says, you have to come to Y Combinator. It'll be worth it. Trust me. And uh, I went back. I was like, no, we're, uh, we have millions of revenue already. We have employees. I'm not doing that. We have 15 employees. It's like, it'll be worth it. Trust me. We ended up going out to Y Combinator. He, he, because we had a deadline for when we needed to get back to the investor, the way with YC, you submit an application, then you go out for interviews. <laughs> they told us to come before they were doing normal interviews to interview with them. Uh, so we're, we got an answer before everyone else got an answer, basically, in that batch. So they invited us to come out early. We did our pitch, which, by the way, we blew the pitch. It was a terrible pitch. But the numbers were so good at the business at the time. There was a cat on fire. It was doubling revenue every, like, three months that they didn't really care. So we ended up going into Y Combinator. So that, that, that was, it was a very weird story. We filled out an application, like after applications were closed, they temporarily opened it. They then invited us to do interviews before anyone else was doing interviews. We got an answer before they even started doing interviews for the main batch. It was a whole, it was a whole situation, a bit atypical. And in your case, what would you say was the before and after of the company after you guys graduated from Y Combinator? For those of you that are applying, it was great. It completely changed our trajectory, to be honest. A couple of the partners, I'll give shout outs. Jared, if you ever listened to this, that was great. And Uri and Aaron. So they, they, they were amazing. So we were raising our Series A. Literally, uh, it was such a, it's a funny story. Michael Seibel, most people know, he stood on stage and said, nobody should raise before demo day. It's a fallacy that the best companies raise before demo day. We then go meet with Jared. And he says, oh, you guys should raise starting tomorrow. After Michael said to everyone, don't raise, uh, just we were at a different stage in the company's life cycle. And they made introductions to pretty much every VC that we could, we created a list and they just made introductions and they made introductions to people that weren't on the list. As an entrepreneur, those are really hard meetings to get. I'm talking about like Alfred Lin at Sequoia, who's the Zappos guy in Airbnb, yeah. to Menlo Ventures who ended up investing to us, to Lux, to really every VC that you could name off the top of your head we met with. Benchmark and NEA and Co2 and all of them. So it was a really great process. And uh, it really short-circuited uh, our network and short-circuited our exposure to the San Francisco community. And we'd love the experience being out there. 
That's amazing. And I love Alfred. Uh, Alfred, in my mind, is definitely one of the best uh, early stage uh, guys right now in terms of investment. I guess in your case, you know, it's, it's quite, a, quite a unique uh, story too because literally, I mean, technically in one single year, you raise a seed, you raise an A round, and you raise a B round. I mean, that's quite crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> so how do you manage to do that? Because typically you wait like 18 to 24 months, you know, in between each financing cycle. But here you, you didn't wait at all. You just went all in and all out. It, yeah, it wasn't planned to happen that way, by the way. So we did our seed. We planned to raise our A. We, we were going to raise an A. We had a term sheet to raise an A before Y Combinator. That investor, I don't think they're super happy with the outcome because they made a lot of money at this point. We turned down the A. We did YC thinking we'd raise the A. And that would last 18 to 24 months. We raised the A in February. We announced it in April just because of COVID happened and we didn't think it was appropriate to announce it. So we announced it in April. And then it was funny. So Menlo called me. Uh, we've loved, shout out to Menlo. Menlo's amazing. Menlo Ventures. They called me around Q3, early Q3, and they said, you're going to get a lot of phone calls. What do you mean I'm going to get a lot of phone calls? You're going to get a lot of phone calls to raise your Series B. You're at the stage where most companies raise their Series B. So most companies raise their Series B between like $5 million to $15 million in revenue. So we were in that range. And uh, they said, you're going to get a lot of phone calls and emails. Like, how is anyone going to know? They're like, people talk. Trust me. And so we ended up getting a whole lot of phone calls and emails. Like, <laughs> it would be like a, an email a day or two emails a day from a, a different VC and different investor all wanted wow. to talk to us. And Menlo said they recommended... They wanted to lead our Series B. They would have wrote the entire. They gave us term sheet to just write the entire Series B, and uh, we said, "All right, if this is actually happening, let's take advantage of the opportunity." We barely spent the money from the Series A, uh, but let's take advantage of the opportunity to see if again we could change the slope of the business by partnering with the right people, and that was the strategy for the Series B. And uh, we opened up the data room, and six days later, it was done. Which <laughs> is crazy. Oh my God. We did a million pitches in over Zoom. No, no, no. We did like 20 pitches. We got a few term sheets. We picked the ones that we thought were the best partners to, again, change the slope of the company and have it get, get to our mission even quicker. So we're talking about a Series B done in six days. Term sheet signed and then uh, cash in the bank about a month later. That's amazing. So so in this case, I mean, you still had the the money in the bank as you were as you were alluding to earlier. So I guess why, why did you want it more? I mean... Obviously, you maybe wanted the network of, of, of these people that were coming in on the Series B and how they could help you guys, or or what were you really looking for? Yeah, so I, I always tell entrepreneurs this, and they're like, what about dilution? And I tell them, do you care if you end up making $750 million or $500 million? I put it that way, they're like, no, <laughs> whatever. It's kind of a <laughs> lifestyle. Will, will anyone care? If they do, they're probably in the wrong business, but if they work in finance or something. So I don't care at all. Uh, and Ian doesn't care at all. It's not it's a single thing in our lives. Uh, so if we don't care about that, uh, we could re-up employees for any dilution that takes place from the financing. And we think that by getting partners around the table that, and all the co all a company is, is like the average contribution amongst the various minds and uh, like skills going into the business. If we could get incredibly talented, well-networked, brilliant, experienced people to help contribute to the scale of the business to achieve the mission and we don't care about the dilution factor let's not be stupid and and like uh just oh, like let's do what's fair but uh if we don't really care the difference between 500 million 750 million or 200 million and 100 million it's, it's a matter in, in the world and we can re-up the people that might get diluted uh where the, the delta is important to them let's just do that and so that's been our philosophy if we could get the right people around the table 
and use a mechanism to do so. Let's do that. And so that's the, the way we think about financing and that's the way we thought about the fee. Nice. So, so in this case, how much money have you guys raised for each one? About 70 million bucks. Very cool. And obviously, you know, part of this is, is really all about the people. So uh, as it comes to people, how have you thought about really building culture? And what is culture? How, how do you guys think about culture at each one? I mean, culture is tough. How do you define culture? Culture is what a person does when nobody else is looking. Uh, so I think about it. What is someone going to do? How are they going to interact with the user? Are they going to shortcut uh, writing beautiful code the right way to scale? Are they going to do what's easier and not what's best for the user? Are they going to answer that support ticket on a Saturday? Like it's what, what people do when you don't need to prod them and no one's looking. That's what I think what culture is. And if you add up those combined behaviors and how people behave, that's the culture of an organization. Um, that's what I think about it. It's, it's, it's everything. I learned a lot about culture from the H1 days, uh, not H1, the research connection days. It was a group of like, core group of like seven of us. There was so much dedication to the mission. It was insane. We would dream it. We would sleep it. I could call someone up at like Saturday at 8 a.m. and just talk about the business. And it was not like I was calling them about work. It was like I was calling them about this thing that we all believe in that was bigger than us and all these other things. And so trying to keep that ethos at H1, which is harder as you scale. The global workforce, global employees in India and Australia and New York, San Francisco and Chicago and Florida. It's a lot harder. It's a lot harder in a remote environment. But uh, it's something that I think a lot about in, in terms of scaling that that type of feeling and ethos. And how many how many people do you guys have now in H one? We have about eighty employees domestically, uh, and then we have about one hundred and twenty uh, based in Hyderabad, India, and we have about three, three to five, uh, Eastern Hemisphere, so Singapore, Australia, uh, etc. And then we have two people in Europe right now. And obviously, many of those uh, have been former CEOs. So how, how do you get um, a former CEO enrolled in, in, in helping you in pushing things forward with you? The two most senior people at the business is Ian, who's, who's been CEO of running his own business for a decade before, and Mark Eigner, who uh, CEO of uh, Polaris, who ended up growing that business, selling it for $100 million plus in his career. He was semi-retired, and we got him over to come to H1. It's just very different. Like what these people are interested in to do on a day-to-day -day basis, you don't manage them. You just like, you, we're all aligned on what we're trying to achieve. And if we're all aligned on what we're trying to achieve and we're low ego in doing so, we'll just all work together. Uh, and so getting that, uh, that's been my philosophy around like how to work together with such senior people. We've made a few uh, like acqui-hires from more junior folks that started their own startups that, didn't, that might not have succeeded out of our Combinator or whatever it is. Uh, and for them, they want to be involved with the company where there's dedication to the mission, they're bought into the mission, and people work really hard. And there you get that same type of feel when you're at a smaller startup and you continue, continue having that feeling. Uh, that's what works best. And that's the environment that I've seen for former CEO founders uh, really thrive in at H1. And to expand on this, there is a, you know, the saying goes that obviously if you wait to hire and to look for people to that moment where you actually need it, you're probably a little bit late. So they say that it's important to start building the network so that whenever you need to bring that person, you're ready to pull the trigger. And, and obviously, in many, in many, many cases, those people become your friends. So when you are, let's say, onboarding a friend, then it comes to the point that, that you realize that it's not going to work out. H how do you fire a friend? Uh, hardest thing about the job is that, <laughs> definitely. You make them realize that it's best for them more than it's best for anything else. When you're at that point, it's it's best for that person to 
for their life, not for the company, not for you, for them to not be doing whatever it is at the company on a day-to-day basis. And when, when they realize that, uh, that makes the conversation a whole lot easier. That's, that's the way that I've been able to do it. Otherwise, it's so hard. And the, sometimes people realize that before you need to say it, but they don't want to admit it to themselves, but there's just a lot of frustration. And other times you need to sort of force the action, which is very difficult. Uh, but that, that's the best thing. Because when it's at that point, it's not good for, it's not healthy for anyone at the business. Most importantly, that person. And it's not good for that person's like life in general and what they're trying to do in life. Absolutely. A cost opportunity. So I think that trying to put them in a different position to hope that it's going to work out, ultimately that's saying you're, you're really creating more damage as the, as the leader of the business. So, so in this case, for you, for H1, Ariel, what does that world look like when the you know, vision of H1 is fully realized? I'm so excited for that world because they'll solve so many problems that exist. So I'll go through some of the big ones that we all are familiar with. If anyone's ever been to vacation outside of their country where they live or state where they live and had to see a doctor, I know that was a tough experience. And you're going to be using H1 in a few years to find the doctor to go see. For those of you that have ever had to find a doctor, to the right doctor to collaborate with or fund for medical research, I know your pain. It's a very hard decision. Who do you work with? Who's the right doctor? Who's the thought leader? Who's the person that's going to lead to a successful clinical trial for you? Uh, you'd use H1. For those of you that look to recruit doctors to go work at your practice or go work at your academic medical center, H1 is the place you're going to be going to. For those of you that are experiencing the pain in life of a rare disease or a rare tumor type, and you don't know who's the right doctor that could diagnose what's going on with your body, it's really painful and you don't know, and you don't know where to look, you don't know who to go to, uh, you go to H1 to find out who that doctor is, all their work, how they could help you, how they've helped patients in the past. And so like, oh, this is just a tip of the iceberg of the problems that it would solve if you have this source of truth, global source of truth for every human in the world going to one location to find out information about healthcare professionals. We think once we've solved that, a lot of pain is going to be solved. And we're excited about that because it's not like sending photos. Like there's a pain point around sending photos to people. But uh, if you solve that, you don't save lives. <laughs> uh, there's a slight difference to if we solve and actually actualize our mission or close to it, save lives and make people live healthier lives. And so that's why it's exciting if we could actually build this. So obviously what a remarkable journey that this has been for you uh, as an entrepreneur with these two companies now. If let's say Ariel that you know now you have the opportunity to go into a, a time machine and you're able to go back in time and and perhaps you know have a chat with that younger Ariel that is uh, still in in the junior year in college, you know, maybe thinking about what's going to be that company that, 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 you know, younger Ariel is going to be building. If you had that ear, that amount of, of time, you know, that, that younger Ariel is listening, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self and why knowing what you know? now? Uh, it's a good question. The advice I'd give to someone else is like, uh, pick something that you really are passionate about. Otherwise you'll give up on it, which I know a lot of people say that advice, but it's true. The advice I'd give to myself, because I, I'm just, I would only pick something that I like, otherwise I'd just quit and not do it, is uh, don't sweat the small things too much because of the ups and downs that are natural. And if you just think about, it's, this is all a marathon. This is a 10-year, 20-year, 15-year dedication. And so persistence and consistency is the are, to me, in my head, the most important things. And most people can't keep up uh, and don't want to keep up because it's really, really hard. It takes so much dedication and so much persistence 
a lot of dark days, a lot of hard days, a lot of exciting days. And so if you have that persistence and consistency and you learn to not sweat those small things, I used to sweat the small things all the time. This client fired us. This investor told us no, and they told us they were going to say yes. It all doesn't really matter if you have the persistence to keep going. It really doesn't. Um, and so I would say those are, that's probably the most important thing. I've learned, uh, it still affects me, but like I've learned to get over the, the small things quicker. I love it, Ariel. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Email me, uh, ariel.cats at h1insights.com. I respond to most emails. And if you're interested in working at H1 and think you could contribute and are really passionate, email me your resume. I will review it, we'll get you out, or I'll send it to the people team who are interested in having really talented people come join. Amazing. Well, Ariel, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.